0: at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to
1: players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. The images I can't shake when I think of what's going on in Ukraine right now come out of Mariupol. Mariupol is a port city in Ukraine's south, It's been fighting off Russian aggression since war first broke out here in 2014. But the combat there now is different, more brutal, more complete. The Associated Press had video journalists embedded there until recently. They captured these images of pregnant mothers being carted out of a maternity ward after it got bombed. The reporters kept filming as one mom who just lost some of her toes, had an emergency C-section. The baby survived. The doctors cried out with joy. And then minutes later, bombing started up again. Now, Mariupol has been described as 90% destroyed. And the last EU diplomat to leave this city said Mariupol is no more. William Wexler, a scholar who's been following this conflict, he says, what's happening here, it makes a grim kind of sense.
2: Crushing an opponent into submission has worked since the beginning of time.
1: Will is actually an expert on the Middle East. He directs the Atlantic Council's Rafik Hariri Center. But he says he's paying attention to what's going on in Ukraine because what happens here is likely to reset the global order for at least a decade. Also, because what he's seeing in the city of Mariupol and elsewhere, it's familiar to him. It reminds him of Russia's intervention in Syria back in 2015.
2: This is the Russian way of war, and we're seeing it again in Ukraine today.
1: But I was reading about how massive devastation has been a hallmark of Russian military strategy for a long time. Like, this prominent Russian military strategist just laid this out. He said, the use of force is most effective if applied decisively and massively. And then he adds that any kind of international reaction or horror at what's just happened should be discounted.
2: It's how they fought in Syria. And it's a way to fight war that sadly can be very effective if your interest is only to be effective. It is not an irrational choice if you have no uh, semblance of morality
3: around
1: your choices. today on the show. When Russia used crippling force in Syria, the American response was blundering. But looking back, there are lessons for the war in Ukraine. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To foreign policy watchers like William Wexler, the way Russia is acting in Ukraine, it's got deep roots in other conflicts, but especially in the way Russia acted in regards to Syria. Syria, of course, found itself in a civil war in the wake of the Arab Spring. President Bashar al-Assad squashed dissent in a brutal way using chemical weapons against his own people. By 2015, Russia became involved, throwing a lifeline to Bashar al-Assad, who is still in power to this day. William Wexler says this alliance was in a way natural. Russia's always relied on Syria to support its naval forces. Russian strategy,
2: Soviet strategy, has always, for very obvious reasons, valued having these warm weather ports and having a presence on the mediterranean and so when russia um, found uh, that its partner the assad regime was threatened uh, because of the civil war that emerged from the arab spring it wanted to do what it could to protect its partner and protect its interests if you recall there was a, there was a time in the Obama administration, where President Obama called on Assad to leave. Well, Assad did not leave. And we also said that there was a red line about the Assad's use of chemical weapons. weapons. Uh, We have communicated in no uncertain terms with every player in the region that that's a red line for us and that there would be enormous consequences if we start seeing movement on the chemical weapons front uh, or the use. Of chemical weapons that would uh that would change my calculations uh significantly well then assad used chemical weapons how did we get out of that situation the hole that we had dug ourselves in because we didn't want assad to use chemical weapons but we weren't in the end of the day willing to use force against assad for using those chemical weapons well russia came in russian diplomats came in and put and put themselves at the center of a deal how what happened if you recall is that russia came in and said how about we organize with the assad regime to remove the chemical weapons um, from the battlefield and i want to thank president putin for his willingness to pick up on the possibility of negotiating an end to syrian weapons of mass destruction and uh, the United States grasped at that because it, it seized victory from the jaws of defeat um, of our own policy. And in fact, it was, as painful as it was, it was a victory because every military estimate that I ever saw said that we actually did remove more chemical weapons from the Syrian battlefield because of that deal than we ever would have from strikes from above.
1: But of course, that sarin gas attack killed 1,400 men, women, and children. Of
2: course, and and that went unavenged. And then what was even worse is even after that deal, even after removing those chemical weapons from the battlefield, Assad used chemical weapons again. And we, the United States, we, the West, did nothing about that. So what that episode did at the end of the day was it brought Russia back into the Middle East game diplomatically, in a central way. Something that we had been trying to avoid and minimize the likelihood of for decades.
1: It gave them power. Real power.
2: It gave them real power. And it suggested to everyone else in the Middle East that Russia was going to actively stand by its friends in the region. That perception was doubled, tripled down, when only a little while later, it looked like the fighting was going against the regime and Russia decided to get involved through an air
1: campaign. And this was in 2015. And at the time, the war was perceived to be at a stalemate, basically. It was just grinding.
2: At the time, it was a stalemate, but but there were even signs that it was going against – slowly it was going against the Assad regime. Russia intervened, and the perception at the time from a great many observers in the West, including President Obama and the people closely around him, was that this was going to be an utter failure for Russia and a quagmire for Russia that it couldn't extract itself from. And unfortunately, it's proven the exact opposite, that Russian air support to Iranian and Hezbollah and Syrian ground operations has proven to be decisive in allowing the Assad regime to survive and, in fact, largely to to date achieve its internal objectives inside of Syria.
1: And I feel like we should just say what air support means, because air support Sounds a little cold and clinical, but what it meant was multiple bombings against hospitals, known hospitals, as in the U.N. gave Russia a list of hospitals to avoid with their air campaign. And they did the opposite.
2: Russia used it as a targeting list. And um, these were not accidents this is the intent this is the this is the purpose they are trying to beat a population into submission they are trying to eliminate hope from the opposition and they do so not only by targeting military targets. They do it. So not only by providing what's called close air support to ground operations, but they do so by targeting infrastructure that has primary civilian purposes or only civilian purposes like hospitals. The goal is the damage. The goal is the despair.
1: And this is so familiar to what we're seeing now in Ukraine.
2: Absolutely. In in Ukraine, the initial objective was a quick blitzkrieg that would decapitate the regime that didn't work and so it was only a matter of time before they turned to this approach the approach that they honed in Syria and why is he doing this let's let's also be clear from Putin's perspective he's now used force a number of times over the last uh, 10 to 15 years every time he's been successful and he's not only been successful But up till this point in Ukraine, he's been successful on the cheap. That's what's really amazing. He's been successful without a commitment of a massive amount of personnel or money. And that is the one thing that's really different here in Ukraine, is that thousands, perhaps over 10,000 Russians, have died in this operation. The Russian army has been humiliated. The Russian army has been humiliated because it was sent on a bad mission with incomplete planning and was using a force that was not prepared. And when they look at it, why the force wasn't prepared, one of the easy complaints is because of the corruption that is so endemic to Putin's Russia. And whenever a military loses and feels that it can um, make legitimately make the charge that it was quote unquote stabbed in the back by their political overseers, that's a very bad place to be if you're one of those political overseers. There's countless examples in history of this. Putin doesn't want to be in that position, which is why I fear that he will do whatever it takes to make sure that there's victory in his eyes.
1: After the break, the message Russia took from its involvement in Syria.
3: Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com.
0: It's my little escape.
3: Now Judy's the life of the party.
0: Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon.
3: Whoa.
1: It's interesting talking to you about Syria and the lessons Russia took from that conflict, because it seems to me like there are a couple. Like, first, Syria elevated Russia diplomatically, made them more of a player internationally, able to broker an agreement with the West, and then also able to come in and and stand by authoritarians in a really brutal way without any consequences.
2: You're exactly right. To the rest of the region, Russia was back as a military player and as a uh, diplomatic player and in many cases as a central one. They tried and were to a great degree successful of turning the diplomacy around Syria from something that was UN-led to something that was Russian-led.
1: I mean, you served in the executive branch while some of this was happening. I wonder if you look back and think there are decision points where the United States could have gone a different direction and would have there would have been a different outcome.
2: Yeah, there absolutely are. There, there are two major decision points. The first is at the beginning of the uprisings in Syria When the United States came to the conclusion that the natural laws of the universe meant that Assad was going to fall, and that the most important thing that we could do was prepare for this inevitability, that was an incorrect assessment of the situation.
1: Sounds like you think it was a little hubristic.
2: I think it was very hubristic. And then after it was proven to be incorrect, we decided that we weren't going to do anything to change that dynamic at the end of the day. I think that our policy on Syria during this time was mistaken, and I'm not the only one. Secretary of State Tony Blinken has said very publicly that when he looks back at the Obama administration, that this was the greatest mistake that we made.
0: Well,
1: some would say that by staying out of the conflict in Syria... I mean, first of all, it's what Congress wanted. But second of all, we could have ended up in a conflict directly with Russia. And that's exactly what we're trying to avoid now in Ukraine.
2: Right. Well, of course, at the beginning point, we weren't in a conflict because Russia wasn't involved in in Syria. Yeah. It was our absence from that conflict that allowed Russia to go into it, which was our second mistake, which was that we made another assumption that when Russia went in, that they were going to fail and that more than more than foil it. they were going to be in a quagmire. And that, too, was erroneous, that assumption.
1: Do you see the lessons of Syria being applied now in Ukraine? I do. I I, I,
2: I give the Biden administration uh, very good marks on four strategic decisions they've made, and I have more question marks on three. Um, the four things that they've done that were exceedingly good is, first and foremost, They made the strategic decision that we are not going to fight a war with Russia over Ukraine. That is a very, very tough decision, a sad decision, but it is actually the correct decision. And it's the decision that multiple administrations have made ever since the the end of of the Cold War.
1: And the reasoning here is because we don't want to get involved in a direct conflict with Russia where we both have nuclear weapons.
2: Well, that's the reason, but there's also the question of where you draw the line. And we've decided to draw the line in a different place. We've decided to draw the line with the countries that we have admitted to NATO. And this is fundamentally what the great lie is to Russian. Talking points, which is Putin will declare, and there are sadly people in the United States that will echo this argument that he is only doing what he's doing because he is th- so threatened by NATO. It's the exact opposite. We consciously drew a line for NATO that, that did not include Ukraine. And more to the point, we have consciously withheld the kind of support, basing, infrastructure from what are now frontline states within NATO that we have applied to, say, Germany for decades and decades. And we've done so only because we were concerned about Russian perceptions vis-a-vis NATO. All of that has changed. So in addition to not wanting to fight World War III over Ukraine, the Biden administration has also made the correct decision to go public with their intelligence very early about Russian intentions, which carried a lot of risks, but was the right decision to do. The third thing is that they are absolutely correct to focus their response on absolutely debilitating sanctions. And the last thing, which goes under-recognized, is that they held the alliance together in the West in a very effective manner.
1: What are the three things you have questions about?
2: Believing that Putin was going to invade, and correctly believing that he was going to invade, we should have done before the invasion a real non-combatant evacuation operation so that we could get out all the Westerners that we needed to do and the people that were at real risk in Ukraine. And by the way, if we had sent the forces in that we needed to do to do such a non-combatant evacuation operation, that would have confused some of Putin's plans. So that's one thing that's already behind us. And then there are two things that are still ahead of us. One is we should be announcing right now that every country that is in NATO will have the same treatment that Germany had throughout the entire Cold War as a frontline state. We're gonna have permanent NATO bases in Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. We're going to have 10 to 20,000 NATO troops in all of those countries. And fundamentally, the purpose of those troops is the same purpose that uh, troops have in South Korea, which is if North Korea was to invade, those Americans would likely die. And then North Korea would know that it's at war with the United States, which is one of the reasons why North Korea doesn't invade. It's that kind of deterrent. And that's what we need to do in the Baltics. The last thing that I have a question mark about the Biden administration is um, no matter how this phase of the operations ends in Ukraine. I fear it will end with Putin actually accomplishing his strategic objectives and being able to claim some sort of victory, which will probably require a new government in Kyiv. But there will be an insurgency inside of Ukraine that will last for uh, at least a generation. We are only right now starting to get into the business of supporting Those kinds of operations, we're supporting it in the context of supporting a Ukrainian state. It's a separate decision of are we going to support it in cooperation with a non-state actor, with a rump state that's left over. Um, I hope we don't end up in that situation of having to make that decision because I hope the Ukrainians are successful. But I do think that we may be in that situation and we need to start
3: planning for it now.
1: If the Western world had been more decisive in Syria, do you think Vladimir Putin he would be as empowered as he is now?
2: I think we should have um, prevented Russia from succeeding in Syria. I think we should have been much stronger uh, against Russia in Ukraine eight years ago when this all when this all started. We did some, but not nearly enough in terms of ability to help put the ukrainian government in a position where they could defend themselves against russia i think that we uh, have not at all supported our frontline nato states to the degree that we needed to all of this is, is hopefully changing right now if all of that had been done previously would that have caused putin to change his mind those are one of the great what ifs questions from history
1: William Wexler, I'm so grateful for your perspective here. My pleasure. William Wexler is the Senior Director of the Rafi Hariri Center and Middle East Programs at the Atlantic Council. And that is our show. Before we go, I just want to tell you that Slate is currently having a sale. You've heard me talk about this before, but I can't mention it enough. We are offering our Slate Plus membership at 25% off for the first year. You know what this gets you. It gets you great coverage on What Next and also on Slate.com. It also gets you great benefits. Like, you can listen to all Slate podcasts, including this one, without ads. You also get member-exclusive segments on shows like Amicus and The Political Gabfest, Fest. Unlimited reading at Slate.com. So help us keep What Next going by signing up for Slate+. Plus. Just go on over to Slate.com slash What Again, it is 25% off your first year for a limited time. So get over there. Slate.com slash whatnextplus. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Carmel Del Shad, and Mary Wilson. We are getting some amazing support these days from Laura Spencer and Anna Rubinova. And we are led by Alicia Montgomery. I'm Mary Harris. I'm handing things off to the What Next TBD crew for the next couple of days. And I will catch you back here in this feed right and early Monday morning.